Welcome to Rafa Radio, a series of podcasts in which we explore the investment universe and share our interpretation of what's going on. The events in Ukraine should be seen firstly through the lens of humanity. But as investment managers, we also wear financial spectacles and can see clearly that the invasion has altered the shape and potentially the future direction of asset markets. There's no logic to war, and seeking a neat and logical explanation of events could be something of a fool's errand. Nevertheless, it has been a remarkable first quarter of the year, and perhaps also a confusing one. Two big shocks dominate proceedings. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and also the Federal Reserve's continued hawkishness, their willingness to raise interest rates. Both have increased the risk of an economic slowdown, perhaps even recession. And markets, well, they've been put into a bit of a spin. I'm joined today by investment director Lauren French, who's going to give us a bit of a roundup of the quarter. Lauren, a very warm welcome. Hi, Rory. Thanks for having me. So I thought we might do something a wee bit different today. There's obviously been a huge amount of coverage on inflation, the ongoing cost of living crisis, rising oil prices, and the energy crisis more generally. So I thought you might be able to quickly summarise a few of those uh, things that everyone is talking about, and then maybe discuss aspects that fewer people are talking about, but perhaps should be. Uh, So first up, let's look at how markets performed over the quarter. And obviously, there's been a sell-off, but what's that looked like? Thanks, Rory. And I think you've summarised the backdrop here really neatly. Of course, the first point is the most important one with the ongoing devastating situation with the war. But of course, the investment implications are, are secondary to this. And and if we take a step back, it was already set to be somewhat of a challenging start to 2022 for markets with central bank policy. Um, And now we've seen some seismic shifts which have been going on within asset classes from fixed income, bond markets, commodities and currencies. And the headline news is really that market movements this year, we've seen the return of turbulence. Some asset classes have have round-tripped and and staged at least a partial recovery recently. But this first quarter of the year is really being likened to the first of 2020, with widespread negative returns across most asset classes. Now, of course, for 2020, this was due to the pandemic spread and the world going into lockdown. But this time around, it's um, really thanks to the, the two things you mentioned, the Federal Reserve policy, and then more recently, the invasion in Ukraine. And focusing on the equity market in particular, has the sell-off been focused one way or t'other? What are the stocks that have really borne the brunt? Good question. You know, the equity market sell-off started in January with uh, with a deep kind of vicious sell-off in US technology stocks those that feature heavily in the Nasdaq, for example, being in the eye of the storm. And the reaction of these stocks um, was really in response to rising interest rate pressures. And this confirmed our fears that these faster growing and and more speculative parts of the equity market would be the most uh, acutely impacted by by rising cost of capital and interest rate rising. So we saw significant selling pressure from across these bond-like equities. And then this was further intensified to a broader equity market sell-off with the invasion. And then on the other side, let's say, of the traditional balance portfolio, we have the bond markets. What's been going on there? Well, outside of equities, it really has been the bonds that have borne the brunt of what's happened this year. 
And they've brought, you know, further into question the role of bonds really as a safe haven in portfolios. And this is really because we're at a time when interest rates are set to rise and, and bonds really dislike that. You know, there's there's the prospect of much tighter financial conditions um, led by the US Federal Reserve. So there's signs that this higher inflation is becoming embedded. And so the, the, the central bankers are forced to act and so interest rates are close to zero. And we've had loose monetary policy for a long time. So so the Federal Reserve is really having to start to adjust and, and, and tighten. And, and we're seeing that in a significant way, you know, akin to the kind of 1994 aggressive tightening cycle that we saw. Interesting. And let's focus in then on central banks and essentially the conundrum that they've got. They have to tame inflation on the one hand, and they've got to support economic growth on the other. And there's also huge political pressure on central banks now. How do you see things playing out for the Fed? And what's the central dilemma really about yeah, I think the dilemma is that inflation's well and truly the genie out of the bottle now. And Ruff has been talking about that for some time. But some of this was arguably short-term inflation um, in response to supply constraints and, and inflationary pressures um, uh, due to sort of the energy crisis. But, you know, for example, in the US, inflation is now above 7%. And the central banks really have to do something about this. And typically, interest rates are used as that lever to, to curb inflation. But they're doing that as a very delicate tightrope at the time when they're having to, you know, think about the impact this has on on the underlying economy. And and if we take the UK, you know, uh, lots of our expenditure is linked to our mortgage rates, for example. And so the thought that interest rates would go up at the same time that we're facing, you know, rising cost of living is a very frightening concept. And I think that's really the dilemma that central banks face. So on the theme of what's everyone talking about, well, the market recently is very fixated with recession risk. And this really ties into this because if markets are fearful of recession and interest rate rises will impact that further, then that's one of the key considerations. Yeah, and it's a, it's an acute crisis and, and unfortunately still looks like it's got further to go. It, it is that old toothpaste out of the tube analogy and central banks now being forced to try and rein things in is is very, very challenging indeed. So that seems to be what most people have been focusing on over the last few months or so. But let's move on to perhaps a few things that aren't getting so much attention and, and that we're thinking about, that you're thinking about at Ruffer. So Commodities. So firstly, obviously, we've seen rising oil prices and there has been a bit of a scramble to try and reestablish oil and gas supplies. Oil majors have done well. Are they still good value? Of course, oil's been in the the spotlight this year. Um, we're all aware of it with the price of petrol, for example, and an oil hit you know a, a headline level of a fourteen year high of over a hundred and twenty five dollars a barrel at the peak of the uh, the crisis recently, and 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 has um, dropped somewhat. But you know we have held energy oil stocks in the portfolio for some time as part of our our rotation into um, stocks which benefit from the reopening um, and switch back on of the economy and industrials. So we have rotated some of this exposure and taken some profits out of some of the larger positions thanks to their success. But we absolutely do still see that they have a role in the portfolio in the era ahead that we see where commodities really could be, you know, a very important thing to have exposure to, both from that inflationary lens and, and the geopolitical trend. Well, and of course, in this longer term context, 
the key part of the investment case for us is that the integrated oil companies, uh, those with the, with the largest amount of capex and power, stand to have a crucial role in, in the energy transition. So whilst they're unloved by investors now due to their negative impact on climate change, these are the companies that have the ability to be significant powerhouses in, in the move towards renewables in, in, in the coming years. And gold. Gold has been strong, obviously, over the last few months. Gold is is traditionally a very good inflation hedge. Does gold have further to go? Does it still have a role to play? Yes, I think it does still have a role in the portfolio. Uh, I drew some parallels earlier with 2020. And there, in in the peak of the COVID crisis, gold uh, actually didn't help. and And it was caught in the crossfires of selling pressure across asset classes, But it did then rebound and, you know, we added to it and it it really helped performance in the latter part of 2020. But this year, gold's role um, has been validated. It's it's performed very strongly recently and it's ending this latest quarter up nearly 6%. So it's proved its role both as in terms of its its safe haven status, that, that sort of traditional flight to safety that we've seen recently, but it also has that inflationary role, as, as you say, a store of value. Um, so n- nevertheless, though, in, in both cases of 2020 and 2022, uh, it, we've proven that we can't rely on these traditional safe havens alone. And, and really crucially are the less conventional assets, you know, the derivatives that we hold in both volatility and credit protection that provide that extra layer of downside protection alongside the likes of gold. And that interestingly leads us on to the next safe haven and the broader field of currencies. So why hasn't the yen, a traditional sort of safe haven currency which investors uh, flock into in, in times of turbulence in markets, it hasn't performed particularly well. Why is that? And then, Lauren, perhaps also you could share some thoughts on other interesting currencies. Yeah, so... I I like to think of currencies that benefit. It's usually due to a flight to safety in one way, similar to gold, as you say. Um, And, you know, the the yen and the US dollar typically have that role in in a flight to safety or risk-off environment. So the dollar, for example, has benefited from this trend. And a key trend really being there that money flies to a place where the income is highest. And so the yield differentials um, between the US dollar and, and the Japanese um, yen, for example, um, is much more attractive to hold dollars at the moment than it, than it is yen with, with the Bank of Japan kind of committed to yield curve control. And, and this is drawing money out of Japan. So the yen isn't acting in that kind of um, traditional protective way that you might expect. However, the unwinding of this in the future in terms of that unwinding of that carry trade could be really powerful. And so the yen could potentially be protective in in a future scenario. Um, And actually, this is what we saw in 2008. Um, Some of Ruffer's strong performance was thanks to our holdings in um, other currencies outside of sterling. Crucially, the yen at, at that time, the yen was a beneficiary of this carry trade reversal that I mentioned. And our holdings in Japanese assets went up significantly in yen. And and that really helped to contribute positively to our performance in a time of extreme market volatility. Well, then on to your question about which currencies look interesting outside of these traditional safe haven currencies, Rory. Um, And one theme we've been 
exploring more recently is how to find a way to benefit from general commodity inflation. So alongside us holding individual equities, um, which stand to benefit from rising commodity prices, we also um, wanted some exposure to um, currencies which would strengthen in, in that environment. Now, of course, some countries are hurt by importing commodity at higher prices and, and the inflationary impact, but other countries seek to benefit from that trend. And, and this was um, particularly interesting with the Australian dollar, where demand for commodities in, in Australia um, should support the currency causing it to strengthen. And so this coupled with some local technical changes that were going on around the Australian pension fund and its its currency exposure, which could add some uh, extra positive strength in, in the short term. But more generally speaking, when we seek to look at currencies outside of base currency, we're looking for currencies that have a sort of offsetting or protective role um, in the portfolio. And, and Lauren, of course, protective assets are difficult to come by. So when they do present themselves, it's always worth having a look. One of the big positions, the major positions in rougher portfolios uh, is the position in index-linked bonds, now mostly in the UK. It's been a large position for several years now. Inflation has returned, and yet the linkers, as we call them, haven't performed particularly strongly over the last three months or so. Now, to me, that's a real head-scratcher. But could you just explain perhaps why uh, the, the linkers haven't done well and and why then you continue to hold them? Yeah, um, it, it is a real conundrum. You know, on the surface, you would think inflation's um, going up. Ruffer have been speaking about this for a long time. Surely the inflation-linked bonds, the, the crown jewels of the portfolio, really should be acting um, to protect us in this environment. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're negative year to date, quite significantly so. And, and this speaks firstly to what we've already discussed about bonds and the rising interest rate pressure, which is hurting all bonds. So, you know, um, nominal rates are going up. Uh, and so index linked bonds are not immune from this and, and they're hurt by that. So we still really want the inflation protection, the long term inflation protection, which you know, we, we feel in that environment, the index linked bonds will do very well. But in the short run, we seek to protect ourselves against that risk of, of rising interest rates through other parts of the portfolio that do well in a rising interest rate environment. So they will have their time in the sun in the future, particularly as this kind of rising inflationary pressures are coming out of control. Um, but, but you know, more recently haven't yet started to show that. And the duration risk, that is the, the sensitivity to rising interest rates that comes by owning a large index-linked position, that can be managed, is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. We, we look to actually reduce our overall duration of our portfolio through holding what we call swaptions. They're effectively options on interest rates that go up significantly in a time when interest rates are rising. So they've been a very useful mechanism through which we've protected our portfolio from the cost of interest rates rising. And they've done very well for us recently. Um, so it enables us to effectively have the long-term inflation protection, but reduce our exposure to interest rates. Lauren, that was a great roundup. Thanks very much for your time. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Rafa Radio on the App Store, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of Raffer LLP. They do not constitute as investment research or advice and may be subject to change. Ruffer LLP is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK and is registered as an investment advisor with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training. <laughs>